Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Barbara C. Matthews of BCM Strategy, the provider of policy-related alternative data. In our conversation, Barbara and I explore how BCM's data first came about as a result of Barbara codifying the geopolitical advice she was providing to hedge funds, and how it has developed into its current form as an investment data set. So in this episode, I'm joined by Barbara Matthews of BCM Strategy. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Barbara. Thanks for having me, Mark. You're very welcome. Um, brilliant. So why don't we begin, Barbara, by um, talking, why don't you just introduce BCM Strategy quickly and, and what it is that BCM Strategy does? Sure. Um, so we help uh, portfolio managers and strategists anticipate market volatility Um derived from the public policy process. And the way we do that is we apply patented technology to convert the words from public policy, what, what, what government officials say and do. We convert those into components that capital markets can use, namely objective numbers. We measure the path toward a decision before they have made a decision. Okay. And so... And your background, going back a little bit, your background is is has been for many years working for the U.S. government in various roles and uh, around the world, and and you've you've worn many hats in your career. How did the tell me the story about how BSM, sorry BCM, came about? How did you um how did you come to recognise the the need for for this company? Um, well, I'll answer that question first um, before talking about my background. So um, during the, the great financial crisis, and specifically the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis, it was 2010 to 2012, um, I was at that stage advising um, large hedge funds on geopolitical risk. And we can talk later about it why it was that I was able to do that. But, you know, it was the, there's the crisis and I'm making money in the crisis and I'm giving them every morning at 6 a.m. assessments of um, where I think the policy process is going. And um, uh, along the way, uh, I would routinely, you know, would write at 6 in the morning and I'd get phone calls at 6.30. You know, why is the market not reacting to this development? And I would say to them, well, that's because it's very technical and the market hasn't noticed yet. Mm. So it became clear to me that um, we were, I was seeing actionable information faster than the news cycle could pick it up because I was a subject matter expert. And, um, and, and my clients were then taking uh, significant successful positions in the market um, based on uh, that, that publicly available information. I read very broadly. Um, and so I knew as the cycle intensified and the crisis intensified that I needed to provide them with a number that, you know, they read intensively market 
markets read a lot of content, but they need numbers. Markets need numbers and data the way you and I need oxygen. And so one afternoon I got out a piece of paper and I thought about everything that I know from political science, everything that I know from law and everything that I know from practical experience in public policy uh, across a range of functions. And I thought, how do I put a number on the risk? And I settled on the risk being momentum and volatility. It's an objective number that, um, that, that can be benchmarked. So I started quantifying it by hand um, for the first year and realized not only is that a lot of work, but, um, but I realized it was profoundly predictive of market volatility. And because I read broadly, I also realized, so now we're looking at uh, 2014, 2012, in that, in that period, I realized I could automate every part of what I was doing because the technology on the language side had become good enough that machines could be instructed to read and tag um, language. Um, knowing, and I've read enough to know that while the majority of natural language processing and metadata tagging um, uh, involves sentiment analysis. My research indicated no one was actually measuring momentum and converting words into momentum volatility numbers. So I did what any lawyer would do. I filed for a patent. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it took about five years to get the patent, maybe less. I don't remember when I filed for it. You kept yourself busy in the meantime. <laughs> you know, the thing about um, geoeconomics, geopolitics, and finance, it's never boring and it's never quiet, except maybe in August. Um, so so anyway, by the, uh, the, the patent was granted in 2017. Um, and uh, with... With that property right in hand, um, I then set about becoming a technology startup and generating the data. It took a little while to create. So we, we now we've been generating data for three years. I would sorry to follow your 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 diversion, but I would oddly enough, I would I would um, disagree with that. I would say that the most geopolitically boring part, period, um, potentially of of at least the last two decades, has actually been oddly enough was was the last. Four or five years. It was the period of, of Donald Trump. Um, actually, not that <laughs> not that much happened. Oddly enough, which was it's almost kind of you know counter counter intuitive. Uh, what do you think of that? In I, I I have a hard time disagreeing with you because I know you want me to disagree, but I can't. And in fact, we have the data to prove it because um, uh, we don't just measure one thing. We generate a multivariate. Uh, data series that automatically distinguishes between rhetoric, what, what, what policymakers say and do in the media, and action. There's a delta between rhetoric and action, and when I say it, it becomes very obvious. Um, but uh, just think about how many times uh, people have um, dissed a policymaker by saying, oh, they're just all talk and no action. Well, we have the numbers to measure that now. Um, so, in, in, and there's also continuity across administrations, as much as you may hate one administration or the other, there's a number of policy areas that on the substance don't change a heck of a lot. Yeah. Um, 
let's let's dig in a little bit more if we can then to your so the process which you were doing as a human which you then recognized that you could automate and give it to the machines what kind of can you give examples of the type of text that you were mining to build these kind of momentum volatility and how that process could could go about what kind of words you were looking for or or you know a specific example just to just to give a flavor of of how that mechanism um works and came about yeah well so actually when uh, uh when i filed for the patent i was experimenting with some different elements uh you know we have a much better process now than i did back then um, but I was automating uh, a range of the, the language recognition elements, uh, even as I was writing it, uh, writing the patent. Um, you know, so uh, let's just, let's take the one that the markets are focused on this week. One can look at an FOMC statement and, um, uh, and, uh, and pick out any number of technical terms. Um, but I would suggest to you that um, you know, the components that matter the most are the ones that are so technical or um, obscure that they don't get a lot of media attention. Uh, and so, well, you know, what we could look at speeches and we can, uh, we have data mining licenses with, um, we have very significant strategic partners. One of our strategic partners is Dow Jones. And so we have a data mining license with their newsfeed. So we have a combination of, um, official sector, open source, um, uh, content generated by, um, by governments and regulators and therefore ethically sourced because there's no privacy that attaches to that information. And those components that require a data mining license from publishers, third-party publishers like Dow Jones, like Thomson Reuters, you know, uh, we pay for those licenses. We take intellectual property very seriously and we're committed to ethical sourcing. Okay. And so you take those, for example, speeches and then, so what are you what are you passing those speeches for, and what what types of words might you be focusing on to, to measure momentum? Um, so, every public policy discipline has a lexicon, and um, you have to be a subject matter expert to know what the lexicon is, and that's where um, um, where. The, where, you, where you come the in knowledge yes where i personally come in my my um extensive experience in uh, in um, global financial policy and uh, geoeconomics uh trade policy uh you know i actually already know the language so uh there are uh, many firms out there who uh, spend a lot of time training their models doing uh, what I'm sorry to say feels a bit like dumpster diving uh, because they will source their language from all sorts of places. They're just desperate to find any words at all. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why our process is patented um, and, and very effective is that we create training data. We don't, um, we're not looking for it. We create it because we know the technical language that uh, policymakers use. You know, um, you know. I, I spent the first part of my career working with um, financial engineers and their regulators on uh, in, in the derivatives and the regulatory capital space. So I will. You know, you wanted an example of a technical term. I'll give you one: the mm. um, high quality liquid assets, yeah. net stable funding ratio. 
Um, you know, those components, um, unless you're in the midst of a financial crisis, as we were in 08, um, that doesn't really generate a headline. But if you're a risk manager or you're uh, an equity analyst focused on financial um, um, issuers, you care quite a lot about those very detailed components. You can't really use Google. Or non-performing loan ratios of Italian banks, for example. Yeah, another favorite. <laughs> uh, and this is not something that Google can help you with. And um, uh, and uh, for as much as uh, uh, our, our partners, Dow Jones and Thomson Reuters, will pick up on components of activity in that space, often there's much more technical work um, that... Uh, a lobbyist or an advocate may be following, but there are Chinese walls inside these organizations and uh, someone looking to take a position in the market today often is not at liberty to talk to uh, the, the, the advocate for the organization. So we kind of fill that gap with publicly um, uh, available information that is otherwise hard to find. And then we measure it so they can develop a signal, they can measure momentum, they can find patterns over time. So... A lot of these, it strikes me, a lot of this with vocab, vocabulary is often used by uh, professions or sectors as a kind of, they speak a kind of uh, their own gobbledygook in order to um, identify, it's, it helps to identify other people in the sector and keep outsiders out as well, a, it's, uh, or maybe that's a... that's a cynical view of it, but it's one I've been, I've been, <laughs> I've been told before, but... Um, so let's so hypothetically speaking, um, if the European Central Bank, if Mario Draghi at the European Central Bank suddenly in his in his six weekly meetings and announcements and state statements um, suddenly starts to um, mention the percentage of non-performing loans at Italian banks um, and you're measuring that he mentioned it once in January and then he mentioned three times in February and then he mentioned it, you know, five times. Um, then there, then the fact that you have input, perhaps a phrase like that, um, into your non-performing, into your, sorry, your, um, NLP model, NLP, not NPL, um, your NLP model, um, then you're then that has allowed then it then it starts flashing a warning essentially there's something going on with Italian non-performing loans and so this bigs up your a risk number your overall risk number for the eurozone because um because not just Mario Draghi but everyone in the ECB and also related um European financial statements are all talking about Italian non-performing loans and you're so you're building a building a chart like that does that is that how it works well, close. Um, um, if it were the ECB, it probably would be the president, um, who is Christine Lagarde. Um, but the um, I was sorry, I was I was basing uh, myself in twenty fifteen when, when. Well, I... in twenty fifteen, yeah. Um, but the but but you know he's got an exalted position in the Italian government right now, so anything he says on the performing loans would be still True. important from a slightly different perspective. Um, we're not really measuring. We're not counting words. And this is something that um, uh, uh, people sometimes have a hard time getting uh, their head around. Um, and again, it's another reason why it's patented. We're not we're not counting words. Um, we're counting, uh, and this is hyper technical in the linguistics area. 
um, we're measuring a layer of language and meaning that only policymakers have. We're measuring the action um, implied by the word. So in, in the example that you gave, the word non-performing loan could have occurred 20 times. But for us, it really only counts as one instance. But the context matters a great deal. Um, I can't really give away exactly how we weight the, the action. Um, that is very proprietary. But the point is, is that we are measuring action, momentum, and volatility. Not, um, uh, we're not counting words. Okay. You know, and, and I, I actually did a blog post back in, I want to say it was 2018, but it could have been 2019. I did a blog post to prove this point because I did a bird cloud. And, and to make the point that um, whether it was the Fed or whether it was the ECB, if you did a word cloud you from a speech, you'd end up with like monetary policy or financial stability as the most used term in the speech. And, and I don't think that's particularly illuminating because, you know, if it's a central bank, they're either going to be talking about financial stability or monetary policy. So I, we don't think word counting necessarily illuminates a lot. Okay. Um, and so what does your, what's the output look like once you've, once you've done your secret source? What's that? What does the data look like? It's a multivariate time series. We use nine plus layers of automated analytical um, activity uh, to, um, to deliver a daily numerical stacked bar chart that shows you how much activity on any given day for that issue, whatever issue you care about. We have a thousand plus lexicon terms. So whatever issue you care about, you can see how much activity that particular day was rhetoric in the media, how much was leaks to the media. Our, our system accurately identifies leaks in the media as distinct from attributed comments. Um, how much was action, how much was data releases, and how much was judicial activity. But I should footnote this to note that um, uh, two things about judicial activity. One, I consider judicial activity be, to be the most random part of the entire framework. And also, we are still a startup. So at the moment, we only take in judicial activity um, inputs from two U.S. regulators and the WTO. Okay. Um, can you give an example of one of the uh, of a type of a topic that this that you could get, that a customer could receive this bar chart on? Absolutely, take your pick. So, in uh, back in 2019, when we turned the platform on, um, we uh, we threw in the term uh, cryptocurrency. So we have three year three plus years of uh, policy activity uh, data for uh, cryptocurrency. So this is before the Libra proposal. After the Libra proposal, we added stable coins. So we've got a multivariate time series for policy activity on stable coins and CBDC. Mm. We have data on climate-related disclosures um, and, and other uh, climate finance topics. In fact, we were um, honored to have been named a finalist in the G20 BIS Tech Spring competition last year, precisely for the, the, the climate data and the way that we approach um, measuring climate-related policy transition risks. Um, we have data on trade policy. We, we, we have been tracking the term trade war. And to go to your hypothetical from the start of this podcast, 
Um, the, the rhetoric readings on trade war during the Trump presidency were sky high. When President Biden was elected and came into office, um, that term has not been performing. You know, the, the people are not talking about uh, trade war. It's been a very disappointing time for trade war. Well, but despite all of the supply chain disruptions, and yes, we do track supply chain and rare earths, the semiconductors and all of that. But no, what, what's really interesting and what got my attention, this is the power of the platform. Um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, out of the blue, trade war got a hit. And I was, I looked at that and I said, well, that's interesting. Why is trade war hitting? Um, and it turned out, um, I don't remember now, I think it might have been the OECD. Somebody, somebody was positing the possibility that um, uh, aggressive implementation of the carbon border adjustment mechanism in Europe could trigger a trade war between the U.S. and Europe. And I thought that was super interesting. So if I were a global macro strategist, a research director, um, you know, that kind of insight would be tremendously useful. Um, because it was nowhere in the, to, the, to the best of my knowledge, nobody has reported on this at all. Well, I don't know that it would happen, but if you are, if if your responsibility is to um, craft scenario analyses, either from the perspective of ensuring that the trading desk has fully priced in all of the possible risks associated with a position over a period of time. Um, or you are responsible for delivering unique insights that provide um, your clients with the capacity to make a good decision, then, um, then you don't have to think that this is actually going to happen, but you need to know that people are thinking about it and are worrying about it. So just because policymakers are talking about something um, doesn't mean it always has to happen, but it will impact the calculus of your decision-making, especially if you can measure the delta numerically, measure the delta between rhetoric and action. Because often in this, I know from my time in public policy, policymakers will do things that people that only a handful of people notice. The people who notice have a significant informational advantage. So you bring us on to a, um, you, you brought me on to the next question, which is, who do you see being, who do you see finding, um, using this essentially, and how do you see them using it? Ah, this is a great question. So um, uh, uh, we've got a couple of different really active use cases. The first of which is volatility traders. Um, last year, we tested, back tested the first two years of data and demonstrated strong um, correlations with um, uh, the S&P, the VIX, and for the term cryptocurrency, Bitcoin prices, roughly 10 to 22 days in advance. So, and it's intuitive if you think about it because policy drives price action. And if you know that public policy is experiencing um, activity in in an issue that's important to you or your portfolio, um, you've got, and you know that markets are efficient, but they are not immediately efficient. You've got an informational advantage. You, we give those volatility traders something that I, in many ways could be considered priceless. We buy them time. We give them time to think. And we free them from the reaction function from the news cycle. So that when the headline hits and the markets react to the headline, they've already laid in their position. And, and this is exactly what the hedge funds were doing with, with the, the verbal, the old-fashioned uh, 
you know, kind of geostrategic analysis that I was providing back when I created the system. Um, in addition to that, you know, so the so beyond the volatility traders, we get a lot of people asking us, well, you know, but what is the decision going to be? What is the trajectory of uh, the decision? And that is a question that continentals ask, research directors, research analysts, you know, basically anybody with a Bloomberg terminal who gets from the moment they walk in the door, the moment they wake up, they understand at a very granular level the, 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 the reaction function between public policy and markets. Um, right now, the, all of those users are humans. They are readers. And so we make available to them through the Bloomberg terminal, for example, access to the words. Um, we recently um, provide, started providing um, some signals via API. We're willing to make the, the, the language available to, um, to you know, advanced firms that use institutional news feeds. So those are, um, those are our capital markets users, you know, research directors, people who read. We have significant training data now. We expect over the course of the next 18 months, because we have a highly curated focus data set of language, um, we will likely be able to generate signals regarding public policy decisions. You know, what path are we on? What's the most likely decision today? That sort of thing. We'll be um, experimenting with machine learning and artificial intelligence over the course of the next 12 to 18 months with this data set. But we're not there yet. But in the meantime, a human reader, a research director, an analyst, a strategist, um, a quantum mental trader um, can use a signal generated by the, pl- the numbers to more efficiently access information that is in the public domain but may not be you know, getting a lot of attention. We think we've got other use cases outside of the capital markets too, but the capital markets are really the early adopters. They're the most relevant for this podcast as well, so they're, they're so they're fine. Um, brilliant, Barbara. I think that's great. I think we've I think we've got a good feeling for BCM strategy and what you guys are up to, and um, and 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 how it works and why. Um, so yeah, Barbara, thank you so much for for coming and talking about the company and introducing yourself, and uh, and best of luck with it with this in the future. Thanks so much.